You know, when we show up on Sunday morning, we tend to put on the happy face. There are people in our church body and even in our community that are dealing with serious life issues. We don't even know how to ask the questions and ask for help. For many of us, life is hard and we're struggling with so many things, but we still come to church and we put on the happy face. Maybe you can relate to what I'm talking about, or maybe you know someone that can relate. Recently, I've come in contact with a a ministry that I think is incredible in helping people deal with these issues. I know many people who have been hiding, who've been embarrassed, who have felt the guilt and shame, who have found a pathway to be open and transparent and found freedom in sharing and stepped into the light. Their testimonies have shown God's power for forgiveness and healing. Their stories of life change and transformation have helped others who heard these testimonies and have stepped into the light as well. This ministry is called Celebrate Recovery, and we're going to be launching that here at Greenville Oaks. People are hurting and really struggling with a lot of life issues. They need a place where they can be around other brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with similar issues but have found a pathway to recovery, to transformation, and healing. They need a place where no one is perfect, everyone is welcome, and anything is possible. Celebrate Recovery begins every Wednesday night starting September 16th. I hope you'll make it a point to participate in this ministry. It'll change your life. Hope to see you there. You've heard a lot about Celebrate Recovery over the last eight weeks or so, and uh, this is the last week of our series called Baggage Claim, where we've taken a look at the things in our past that continue to affect us in our present, whether those things are sins or those are hurts that have been caused to us in the past that we find hang-ups and habits causing problems in our lives. We all have baggage. And uh, so we've talked in this series about how we deal with that. First, we confess that baggage. We, uh, we, we confess our sins to God. We uh, admit what's going on in our lives and the hurts that have caused those habits. But it's not just about what we do personally. We want to be a community of faith that accepts, accepts people no matter what their baggage is. And so how do we become more of a community? That's what we've talked about in this series that receives people in no matter where they are, pointing them with the light of Christ, sharing our struggles and recovery from all those things. A couple of weeks ago, I also talked about some practical ways that we deal with our hurts, hang-ups, and habits and find healing from them. If you want to know more about all this, uh, we encourage you to come Wednesday night and be a part of the first session of Celebrate Recovery. But today, I want to move past this focus on baggage. We've talked a lot about all of our baggage, and I want to talk about really what this whole series is about. And that really is about the God who wants to claim that baggage. And a lot of us have a lot of different perspectives on who God is, and all of that's formed by all of our experiences in church and throughout life and the struggles that we have and the questions and doubts that arise. And today I want to point to a, a, hopefully a better picture. And, and, and so today as we start into this story, it's going to be a story that most of you have heard, the prodigal son story, Luke 15. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open to that. But what I'm finding is that uh, most of us don't need to be taught new things. We need to be reminded of the same things over and over again, don't we? And so I hope today as we look at this story, maybe you'll get a a different frame. Maybe you'll see something you've never seen. Maybe the Spirit will speak in a way uh, you just haven't seen this story before. 
And this morning I want to pray as we enter into the story that God would speak powerfully in, in the ways only He can. God, this morning uh, my prayer is that you would welcome home sinners as you've been do- doing for centuries. That today, no matter where we find ourselves, we would find ourselves welcomed home and celebrated. Uh, not for the sin that we've been involved with, God, but because of what your Son has done for us and the new life you want to offer. God, we long for a day when we'll get to see you face to face. But in the meantime, while we wait for that, we have a spirit that wants to help us find healing, that encourages us to get rid of our baggage and to claim your healing. So today, God, would you take us one step closer to that journey? Would you give us abundant life? And this morning, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in hearts. It's the name of Jesus we pray. And everyone said, amen. Well, as I thought about the prodigal son this week, I, I really have come to see this as the central story that forms and informs my view of who God is. Most of us have stories that really do relate to us who God is. And your stories may be different than mine, but I'm here to tell you, this probably is the most central story in my experience to helping me understand who God is. And I'm, I'm grateful for this story because without it, we'd, we'd have a missing piece of who God is. And I'm glad to know this God as I take a look at it. And so I want us to look again at this story. You may find yourself in different places in the story, depending on where you are in this season of life. But I want to point us forward to understand that this story must be a north star for us that orients us in our journey forward as a congregation. No matter where God takes us, this is a lighthouse. This is a place to return to. This is the character of who our God is. This is a building block for your relationship with God. And so let this sink in deeply today as we look at this story. You've probably heard lots of times, my prayer is God would speak anew through this. A little bit of context. Jesus tells this story as a parable. So this is not a historically accurate story. It's a story to related truth that Jesus tells. It's possible this might have happened, a story like it. But this is a parable uh, that really guides our idea about who the Father is and who we are as his children. And Jesus tells this in a context of people who are called Pharisees that are struggling with the fact that Jesus is hanging out with sinners. So it's important to know that information as we read this story, that this is written to a specific community, told to a, a specific group of people. And again, this has to be an orienting story because the problem is when we walk into this uh, journey as a church to receive people who have baggage, that will be misunderstood by other churches and other Christians. Because not every church is like that. Not every church wants to receive all those whom Jesus brings. But, but, but Jesus calls us to be a hospital for sinners. Amen? Not just a country club for the well-to-do. And so all of us raise our hands as sinners, seeking that recovery and helping others find the same way. And so as we read this, I want you to hear this in the midst of that, this compass, this story that's so central to our lives. Luke 15, I want to begin reading in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got got, uh, together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So there's a story of one father, of two sons. We'll talk this week about one of those sons, and next week in the series I'll tell you about more uh, at the end of this service. I'm going to talk about the other uh, brother in this story. But this is about one particular son, the part we're going to read today, and one disrespectful request. And actually, it's a whole lot more than disrespectful, let's be honest. Because in this time period, I want you to think about what it would take to give an inheritance 
to his son because most of what they had was caught up in the, in the job that they were doing. And most of that would have been farming or fishing, we see, or there would have been several different jobs. But in the case of this story, most likely this father would have had to have sold part of his land in order to make the money that he would give to the son. So what the son is effectively saying to the father is, Dad, I, I want your things more than I want you. I, I, I wish you were dead so that I could have it, but since you're not, why don't you go ahead and sell the land so I can have it and go off for the rest of my life? Now imagine the affront that would have been to a father. This is the land that God had promised the Jewish people this time. So the father's selling off a piece of God's promised land to get the money so that he can give this inheritance to his son that's wandering off. But the, the father's willing to do it. And so as the story goes on, we continue to pick up on this story about a younger brother, and older brother. And I don't know where you find yourself in this story this morning. Maybe it is the younger brother you identify with. Maybe it's the older brother. Maybe you have been the one who's always been doing what's right and trying to follow the letter of the law. And, and so you, you connect with the older brother. Maybe it's the father. Let's be honest. There are some this morning that are praying about prodigal children in their family they hope will return home. And this becomes a difficult passage and a difficult story for other reasons. But I want us to be careful not to always read ourselves as the father in this story. That may, in fact, be who you are right now. And we pray with you about the future of your kids if that's your situation. But we have to be careful not to read ourselves as the hero of every story. I find myself when I'm reading the gospel sometimes wanting to identify with Jesus. But the truth is, I'm more like the Pharisees and tax collectors. So this morning, I want to invite you to view this story from, from the, through the lens of the younger brother. And, and I want you to read it from that context because I think there's a powerful word that God wants to speak to us from that place. Because most of us have walked away from God at one point in our lives, haven't we? We've taken a journey away, whether that's been a long journey or maybe we feel like we're still not welcome home. And this story has something to say to those of us who have wandered off. You know, we discovered a couple weeks ago, do you remember the whiteboard that I had up here? There's, I had hurts, hang-ups, and habits on the board and talked about how our habits are coping mechanisms to help us deal with the hurt that's involved in our lives. So we learn these ways to kind of deal with the pain and the hurt and the difficulties of our lives. And those habits turn into addictions often, which cause all kinds of problems in our lives. And sin can often be that kind of tool for us, can it? We learn ways to cope with our pain by dealing in these habits that somehow numb that pain, but it also tends to cause more problems. But sin can be an effective pain management tool. I mean, all of us can kind of admit that, right? We've been, it's been helpful at some point in our lives. I mean, I heard someone say recently, if you think sin isn't fun, you're probably not doing it right. Because there's a piece about sin that is fun. It's thrilling for a season, isn't it? But then you wander down that road a little further and you begin to realize the pain and the difficulty that's caused from the sins that we go into. And in the case of the son in this story, that son had no idea about where that journey and that money and that road was going to lead him down to. And that's why sin is so enticing. Is it can numb our pain, it can be pleasurable for a season, but we have no idea what that sin might lead us to in the end. And that's exactly what happens to the son in the story Jesus tells Let's keep reading in verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. See, here's the problem that sin causes in our lives is we never imagine what sin's going to do because sin makes promises It doesn't fulfill them, does it? Sin makes promises it never keeps. Sin writes checks it can never cash. 
And so we keep going down these roads hoping that all of this will lead us to some kind of fulfillment. But what we find on the other side is this cycle of guilt and shame and having to find forgiveness and then walking back to the sin. And it's just this this awful cycle that we walk through. Because that's what happens. Addiction, sin, happens when we try to take God's good gifts and we try to get more out of them than they're really intended to give. We make them gods, we make them idols, or we uh, try to enjoy the pleasure of them outside the boundaries of, that God's designed for us. So, for instance, alcohol, I mean, that's, a, that's a gift of God if used within certain boundaries. But if you step outside of those boundaries to see drunkenness, it creates all kinds of family cycles. It creates all kinds of problems. Some of you know that so well because your family system centered around that story. And so these gifts that God gives can turn into all kinds of wrong things if we abuse them or take them out of his boundaries. Sexuality is the same way. It's a gift of God meant to bring intimacy to married couples. But you take it outside of those boundaries, and all of a sudden you have the wounds that occur in a room this size that we all can tell. I mean, how many of us can say we're really whole sexually? I mean, so many of us have experienced pain and difficulty as a result of taking it outside of God's boundaries. Painkillers are this way, right? Can anyone say amen to that? Painkillers are good, aren't they? When you're going through some pain in your life, you've been through surgery, you're trying to recover from something, that's a gift that God has given to us. But, but you begin to take that past the time that you have the pain, and all of a sudden you've got an addiction that's out of control that creates all kinds of havoc in, in its place. See, this was the original sin. As God gives all these great things to, to humanity, he, he offers all these trees as food, but he says, here's the one, here's the boundary marker. Don't step inside the boundary marker, but what do we do as humans? We always want to step across that line, don't we? We always want to find out what that thing is and if it might be better than all the great things he's given us already. See, the fall isn't just a story that's written about one time in history in Genesis 3. The fall is a story that's written and told in all of our lives, isn't it? Where we knew what the boundaries were, we knew what would be healthy for us, but we tend to want to walk outside of that line. And it's easy to see in others, isn't it? You can see somebody destroying their lives far ahead of what they can. It's just much harder to see that in your own life, isn't it? It's much harder to see down the road that sin leads you down you would have never imagined. Sin writes checks it can't cash. And so many of us have tried to cash those checks, and we end up bankrupt. And that's why God names certain things as out of bounds. God's not trying to destroy your life by giving you commandments about how to live. He's actually trying to give you boundaries to say, hey, look, my good gifts are good within these boundaries. Enjoy them within these boundaries. But, but you step outside of that and you never imagine the roads it might lead you down. Romans 6, Paul talks about something I just want to read from in a moment. If you have your Bibles open to Romans 6 real briefly. It's a passage that we mostly take to uh, be focused on eternal life. And certainly it is about that. But I think it also has something to say about this series, about our baggage, about everyday life as well. This is Romans 6, the second half of verse 19 is where I want to start reading. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, the idea isn't that you're either a slave or you're free. He says you're in slavery to one of two masters. You're either in slavery to righteousness and to God, or you're in slavery to sin. 
So the choice isn't free yourself from sin so you can be free to do whatever you want to do. Are you going to be a master to righteousness in God or are you going to be a righteousness, a slave to, to sin? And many of us know what it's like to be in bondage to sin, don't we? To know what it is to want to get out of this pattern of behavior, to want to move away from this difficulty we have, and yet it seems to keep us mastered. It seems to tell us when to spend money and when not to. It tells us when to drink and when not to. It tells us when to walk outside God's boundaries, and it has more control over us than anything God shares in our lives. So what Paul is saying is the wages, the payment of sin, is death. That's what habits lead you down a road to. That's what the son in the story is, is finding, is that when he walked down that road that he thought would lead to life, what he actually found was he was just longing for the pods the pigs were eating. It was not a life that he'd hoped it would end up. See, sinners don't do long-range planning well, do we? I mean, it's really about short-term benefit. We think in the short term, we think about the moment. But most people who are caught up in sin don't have this perspective about what long-term life looks like, what, what a healthy journey would look like. It's about the moment. But its cost, its wage, is long-term destruction. Because no one today is making a plan long-term to destroy your life, are you? Are you, are you plotting this morning how the next addiction is going to occur in your life? No, we don't make those kinds of plans. We make one step on a journey that we never imagined we couldn't recover from. But once you end up at the bottom, you begin to see what you could have never seen at the beginning of the road. This is what uh, the story continues in Luke 15, verse 17, this way. When he came to his senses, and if you like to underline phrases in your Bible, that might be one to underline. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him. And listen to what he's going to say. This is his plan. He's planning a speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I love that phrase, as I said at the beginning, when he came to his senses. How many of you have had that moment before in your life? Where you hit bottom, and it was like this moment that it changed everything. I mean, something became clear that was never clear before. Or you get to the bottom, and you look around, and you think, how did my life get to this place? When he came to his senses, it's this moment of enlightenment. It's this moment of the first step of recovery that says, I'm powerless over what I'm involved in. When the son took the money and ran, he never had any idea he would get to this place. But sometimes the only way we begin a long journey toward recovery is to hit bottom. And this is what's amazing about sponsors and and recovery ministry. They have the most amazing ability to let people go and self-destruct without trying to save them. Because they've seen enough of their friends that they can't make it happen. It has to be the addict who makes the decision to get to that place. And often it means getting to bottom before you get there. Now, I want you to think about the son's story. What has the son lost at this point in the story? The son has lost his finances, right? His security. He got that from his father, but that's all long gone and the land with it. He's lost his food. He doesn't have anything to even fill his stomach with. He's longing for the pods the pigs are eating. And then he loses something else maybe more important. He loses his identity in the midst of all this. You notice the speech he's preparing for his father as he's walking along the road back home? Because here's the deal. If you've ever gotten caught up in a sin and ended up down roads you never imagined, my guess is you've lost your identity as well. When you make mistakes, when you take on baggage, you can often begin to begin to believe lies about yourself. 
And that's what's going on in the story. Do you see what he's preparing to say? I can no longer be a son. Maybe I can be like one of his servants. And I would submit that some of the stories we grew up with in our churches about what religion is, is really a story much like this. We get to the point where we make sure people know you're bad, you're a sinner, and God would never accept you as you are. But if you get it all together, if you check all these boxes, then maybe you could work yourself up to slave or servant status. And that's the gospel of legalism. It's what can I do to make sure God has no choice but to save me because that's the transaction, right? I check the boxes and God's bound by my choices. That's a gospel of legalism. But the, the gospel story in the, in the prodigal son is a story that's good news. It's very different. It's not you'll become a slave. As we read on, we find out there's more to the story. Because here's the deal. You, you're not a slave or a servant of God. There's a sense in which we're a slave to God or a slave to righteousness. Yes, that's one metaphor. But you're not a servant or a slave when it comes to the prodigal son story. You're a son and a daughter. And we forget that along the way because we think we have to earn our way back or we can't possibly get back that status because of all that's in our past, our resume. But God's ready to receive you back as a son or a daughter, not as a slave or a servant. You don't work your way back into God's good graces. He gives you a place back at the table. And it is not the gospel to believe that maybe I can earn my way back to be paid like the servants. No, your place is as a son and daughter of the king. That's what was said in Genesis 1.27. You were created in the image of God. Every single one of you was created in the image of God. You bear his likeness. You are not a servant. You are a son and you are a daughter. And I don't know what your baggage is, but I'm willing to guess that either through your own choices or someone else's choices, you've got this kind of baggage. We've been talking about this long enough that I'm guessing you've gotten to that place to know what that is. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know, not everyone's like the younger brother who made this decision to go destroy their life. Some of you, you had your life destroyed for you because of the choices of others who'd been down that path. As I thought about stories that could be shared this morning or testimonies, I asked Holly if she'd be willing to share her testimony because her story is not about making bad choices. It was about the choices of others that brought hurt and pain, but also that brought healing, the, the other choices. So right now I'd like to show this video. It's my wife Holly's story that she wanted to share. I grew up in a single parent home. My parents got divorced when I was three years old. Um, my mom was 23 and she had me, my middle sister who was one, and my youngest sister who was a newborn and was on her own at that point. So we moved in with my grandparents and they helped raise us. We didn't go to church whenever I was growing up, so we didn't have that church community to fall back on during that time of being without a dad. And so that was really hard. Um, I'm thankful for the the spot that my grandparents were able to fill in my life during that time because I don't think that my mom could have done it without them. But having a church family and a church community would have been so much better during that time. But in 91, my mom got remarried to my stepdad, Greg. Um, he was one of those guys that stepped in and filled the void and became a dad for my sisters and me. Um, he made the sacrifices. He was there for us. He sat through our dance recitals. He bought us our first car. He came to our high school graduations. Uh, he's the one that walked us down the aisle when we got married. 
he fully took over that daddy role, even though he didn't have to because we weren't biologically his, but he was the one that was there for us. Whenever they got married, he decided that it was important for us to be a part of a church. And so we started getting involved in the local church. And it's because of that that I got baptized when I was 13. He just was the spiritual provider for our family, when, especially when um, they first got married. Um, he's the one that decided that it would be good for my sisters and me to be at a private Christian school. So he sent us to Dallas Christian. And that's where I ended up meeting Colin in the eighth grade. Um, without him, my life could have potentially, likely, would have taken a completely different path. And so I'm so grateful for the impact that he had on me and my sisters as well. I know that divorce isn't what he wants for families or for children to have to go through, but in this world, it's something that is sadly really common. I'm thankful though in my circumstance that he was able to work through that and use that really hard time in our lives to make me better and um, to use my stepdad Greg as a means for us to become a part of the body of Christ and to become better followers. I'm just so thankful that we were able to be blessed looking back on it um, by my parents' divorce. Even though it's not what he may have necessarily wanted originally, he was able to still use our pain and our hurt um, for good. Isn't that what we all want to be able to say? Because no matter what the baggage was in our lives, even if it wasn't our fault, many of you, that's been the story you've been struggling with all through this is, this wasn't my deal. This got put on me. But to be able to somehow be able to redeem that story and tell about God's goodness despite it or through it. Some of you right now are living out of a hole of your father's love that you never received. And right now, you would do anything for your dad to come back and be able to say, well done, or you... It's the most difficult thing in your life right now is trying to figure out what that looks like. Maybe your dad passed early or your mom passed early, and you're walking out of those wounds. I'm telling you, it is a difficult thing to figure out. So some of you, it's that. Others of you, it's, it's your spiritual father. You feel like you're, you're distanced from him. You don't know if he'd ever accept you back. You're wondering if he's even that good of a God. And I'm here to tell you today that God is the same God in this story. Which takes me back to verse 20. And the good news. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, the son got out part of the speech he'd planned before that. But do you notice the line that's missing? Maybe I can become your servant or slave. But before the son can get out the prepared speech in all its finality, the father cuts in on him, and this is what it says. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on and Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. 
There's no room for any of us to come to God and say, just make me one of your hired servants because the truth of the matter is we're sons and daughters of the living God who's waiting for us to come home so that he can celebrate our return. And that's what the church is to be about as well. It's a group of people who are all raised ready with calves to be killed so that we can celebrate all those who've been lost who are returning back home. That's what we're here for. It's what all of you got to experience at some point, if you've ever come out of the waters of baptism, was you were claimed as a son, you were claimed as a daughter. It wasn't servant or slave status. You were home and you were to be celebrated. And the angels in heaven rejoiced as a result of it. See, our God's the God who interrupts all of our speeches that we plan so that he might receive us back. Because that's not who our God is. And this is why this story it has to be our compass, it has to be our north star. Is as we journey forward, there are going to be people who question, is this really as good as God is? Are you sure? Because I didn't grow up with this story. And I'm here to tell you, this is who God is. And if you're questioning if you can be received back, the truth is, yes. And he's got a party ready for you if you just come home and admit and confess and repent, there's always a place at the Father's table. And your, heavenly, your, your earthly Father may not have shown that love to you, but it's true, and I've seen it, and I've experienced it, and the stories can be told around this room of our God who does this. Amen? But I want you to pay close attention to the Son's confession one more time. Because if I could sum up this whole series, His confession is what I've been getting at from day one, from the first Sunday here. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. That was the first sermon I preached in this series. 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and, and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? This vertical relationship has to be restored, and we do that through confession. We did that when you came forward and put all your cards in the boxes. God forgave those sins. But then he says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. This is a horizontal confession that's now made with the Father. It's not just God we confess to. Now, James 5.16, what does it say to us? Confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. This is what the son's saying, but it doesn't stop there. The rest of the confession is, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, he's wrong about that. But the truth is, on his own, he's not worthy to be called son. This is step one in any kind of recovery process is what? I am powerless to try to fix this on my own. And this is the confession of the Son, and he's so right about this. I've, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against others. I want to be healed of those things, and I am powerless, and I don't know the first place to start. And the best thing that's known to do at that point is let's throw a party because your confession is exactly right. Some of you this morning need to make this confession your confession. We would love nothing more this morning than to, to make sure that you're baptized this morning, that you confess to God, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against others. I'm powerless, I'm no longer worthy. And what God says is, hey, you don't have to be worthy on your own because Jesus Christ made you worthy with his sacrifice on the cross. And we'll all celebrate it, won't we? The story Jesus tells reminds us that God doesn't love us when we get it all together. God loves us, period. I want you to check out the final description in verse 25. What's that party like? (laughs) It's a pretty good one. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, when's the last time you went to a party and you heard music? Pretty normal thing. Some of you might have been someplace last night and you heard music. But when is the last time you went to a party and you heard dancing? That's a whole other party, right? 
God does it up big. He says, this is not just about music. There's going to be dancing. This is what it's like when prodigals come home. He throws a party fit for a king. And why? Because we're all sons and daughters of the king. Not slaves hoping for a place back. He throws a party fit for a king. So church, this has been the whole point of the series all along. Bring your baggage. Confess your sins one to another and to God and and, and admit that you're powerless and you're not worthy. And in that moment, God's ready to throw a party for you. And this is what Celebrate Recovery is all about. And this is what the series has been about. I know we have this baggage on stage and it might seem like all of this was just about getting our sins out there and talking about all this junk in our lives. And, And that's a reality. But how old does that get if that's all church is about? No, Celebrate Recovery is about celebrating recovery. It's not just we come on Wednesday nights and we just kind of pour our baggage out and kind of compare notes, right? That doesn't do us any good. But it is to say, hey, guess what? I've got my 90-day chip because I found sobriety for this long. We're going to celebrate that. We get to give out one-year and two-year and five-year and 20-year chips because people are finding recovery, and that's what's worthy of celebration, which leads me to the next series that I'm excited to bring to you. So there's a Faith at Home Center over here that I would encourage you, if you haven't been out these doors into the Faith at Home Center, please go there today and check it out. Faith at Home is an initiative of this church that's intended to try to make spiritual leaders, uh, first and foremost, the parents and grandparents in a family system. It's your job, first and foremost, to train your children in the way of Christ. You are the primary spiritual leader in your children's life. They come here, and what we want to do is we want to equip you in every way we can, and we want to support exactly what you're doing at home to raise your kids in a community of faith that helps one another. That's what the whole thing of Faith at Home is about. And every so often, about twice a year, we have these campaigns uh, that we're trying to focus on habits that we want to develop in our families as a piece of this larger Faith at Home initiative. We had something called Prayer at Home last year where we encouraged families and individuals and small groups to be involved in prayer with one another to develop that habit that's so important for families. Earlier this year, we did Meals at Home where we uh, encourage you to be around the table together and engage in meals at small groups. The importance of being around table without technology and good conversation, faith-forming conversations. We wanted that to be a habit. And the third campaign we're starting next week, and I love this because it fits perfectly with Celebrate Recovery. God's a good God. It's called Party at Home. And I know that might sound like a strange campaign, right? Party at Home? But here's my deal. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus finds himself at parties. But if there's any reputation that Christians have, it's that we're the anti-partiers, right? Like party, that's a worldly thing, right? Why, why in the world would we bring that home to church? Well, the truth is, the world stole what should have been ours. Like, the world has perfected using parties to numb themselves, not to celebrate the action of God in the world like the festivals in Israel's history. So it's time for the church to take the party back. In fact, my vision and goal by the end of this series is that when people around Allen think about Greenville Oaks, they go, hey, that's that party church, right? Because when people come home to the Father, you know what they get? They get a party. And it's important for us to take this back for all the right reasons. Not to party in ways that numb us more, but to party in ways that remind us of the story of God. This is why the Passover is such an important meal, because everything that's eaten reminds the people so they can pass on faith to the story, uh, to the kids that are there. So as you leave today, or you should have already received many of you some cards, we want to encourage you to pass those out to a friend who needed church where they can party. 
They might be surprised by what they find because this has been the Christian tradition from the very start of things. We need celebration in our homes and we need celebration in our churches. And we're going to inject that back into the life of our church and hopefully other churches as well. So make plans next week to be here uh, for church, of course. But we're going to have a kickoff party at 3 o'clock next Sunday. Uh, we encourage you to come and bring, your, uh, your, bring a chair that you can sit in, a lawn chair, bring a friend. Bring your football jersey, whichever one you want to wear, but you will be ridiculed if it's not a Cowboys one. And we're going to be watching the Cowboys game at 325 outside or in our teen center. We're going to find a place for it. Bring, your, bring it and, and, and bring uh, tailgate foods along with you. We're going to have a party outside, and we want you to invite your friends because this is what the people of God do is they learn to celebrate together. This is part of what we're missing in our community. We don't get together enough. And the early Christians and the Jewish people were doing this all the time. So we're going to be throwing several parties. We'll tell you more about that next week. But we encourage you to be here next week as we begin this celebration, this party at home, as we develop a habit of celebrating and partying for all the right reasons. Let's pray together as we close our time. God, I thank you so much that you're a God who welcomes us home as sons and daughters and doesn't demand us to be slaves. God, our our, our story begins with the people who were slaves in Egypt. And you, you made them promise, God. You made them commit that they would never make slaves out of the people that they lived over. And they didn't live that out, God. seems like we're always making slaves out of others because sometimes we believe we're slaves ourselves. So God, would you change in us this belief? Would you bring home prodigals? And would we always be a church that's ready with party hats on and and calves ready to be slaughtered so that we can have a feast celebrating your good work in the world? God, prepare us for these weeks ahead so that we can become a church that celebrates your goodness. We can become families, God, that celebrate rather than finding fighting our most easy thing to do. God, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the stories he told that are the truth about who you truly are. And God, we we set this story central so that it can be our North Star to remind us that you are a good God who's worthy of all of our praise. So God, receive our confessions. Heal us as we confess to others. And God, any unworthiness we feel that is legitimate on our own, would you make us worthy through your Holy Spirit? We pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people who agree said, Amen.